Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Hello, and welcome back to the Agents of Innovation podcast. I am your host, Francisco Gonzalez, and I want to thank you for joining us here on episode 73. We are featuring a great guest coming up in just a few minutes, Sam Staley. He is the director of the DeVoe Moore Center, which is basically a public policy think tank on the campus of Florida State University in Tallahassee. He's also an author and a man of many uh, trades, and he is going to talk to us about many of his experiences, but also we're going to have a a great conversation about entrepreneurship and innovation. And Sam Staley is also a listener to the Agents of Innovation podcast, so it's exciting to have one of our listeners on. And he's somebody who I've known for at least five or six years now, maybe, maybe a little longer, when I also used to live in Tallahassee. And speaking of Tallahassee, there is a song that we're going to play at the end of this episode that is actually titled Tallahassee. Now, the band that wrote the song is not from Tallahassee. They're not even from Florida, which Tallahassee, as you may know, is the state capital of Florida. But the band is Green River Ordinance, and we actually had one of the band members on the show uh, back in December, I guess. We released the episode around then, episode 67, with Josh Jenkins. Josh Jenkins is the lead singer of Green River Ordinance, and they wrote a song a few years back called Tallahassee. I think they just liked the way Tallahassee rolls off the tongue. And so we're going to hear that song, which I thought was fitting because I was in Tallahassee, back in Tallahassee, uh, to interview Sam Staley. And we did this interview actually at the end of February. So um, it's, uh, it's it'll be great to now release it. And he's got a new book coming out uh, called The Beatles and Economics. And it will be out this month in April of 2020. So you can get it very soon. Or if you are listening to this before it comes out, you can pre-order a copy. And we're going to, since this podcast deals a lot with entrepreneurship and also artists, musicians, I thought this was a really cool combo to, to be able to talk about that as well. So coming right up, we'll have Sam Staley followed by a song by Green River Ordinance, which their lead singer, Josh Jenkins, was on this podcast in episode 67. And don't forget to go to the agentsofinnovation.org website. From there, you can find all of our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Also blog posts about each and every episode. And please subscribe a friend, subscribe yourself, and continue to spread the word. You know, many people are locked down right now as we are releasing this episode due to the uh, coronavirus. And so we are um, hoping that maybe these podcasts will be ways to inform and entertain them as well. So please pass one on uh, that you think might be good for them to hear and maybe find of interest and learn something and regroup and restart. And here we go. We're going to get you going with episode 73, Sam Staley coming right up. I want to welcome Sam Staley to the Agents of Innovation podcast. We are here where he lives in Tallahassee. Uh, He teaches economics at Florida State University. He's the author of several novels and other writings and a lover of alpine skiing, 
says he's passionate about teaching and he believes our potential as human beings has yet to be seriously tapped. He's also the director of the DeVoe Moore Center, which is essentially a public policy think tank housed on the FSU campus, named after a philanthropist to FSU. So Sam Staley, welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Oh, thank you for having me, Francisco. It's an honor to be here. I've been listening to you for quite a while, so this is great. Great. And um, I first got to know Sam, so our audience knows that when I was working in Tallahassee for another public policy think tank, the James Madison Institute, and uh, he serves still, right, on the advisory council, on the research advisory council, or did yeah. at least at one point. No, yeah, I think I am still still on the research advisory council and still do a lot of work at JMI. Yeah, and, and, and then you, you do your own work at the Devo Moore Center. So um, as, we, as we're going to get through the interview, we'll get to a lot of these topics. Uh, but I also wanted to just start with asking you to tell us a little bit more about the earlier part of your career and some of the formal and informal education that led you to what you're doing today, particularly in regards to your teaching. Right. It's, um, it's an interesting question that I sort of think about this arc a long time. And as I've been doing it more and more, now I've got several decades under my belt. You know, sort of, there's a lot of reflection that goes into that because I think it does inform a lot of what I do on campus at FSU and also my worldview. And honestly, my biggest education was growing up in my father's business. It was a small business in a, an industry that should not have ever existed, um, would not have, that, let's just put it this way, if we had had uh, the titans of industry deciding whether or not this is a business that should be funded in Ohio, they would have said, no, it's ridiculous. But my father was an entrepreneur and he had a passion for the industry he was getting into. Um, he was an innovator himself. A lot of that driven by the desire to keep the business open. And I have realized that over the years that that, that ethic, that growth mindset that he had, that was just part of who he was, really has shaped the way I even approach teaching in the classroom. And it's all about the human potential because my father grew up very poor. And, um, not, and they were, his father had a job, but it, they were definitely... Um, they were definitely well below middle class. They moved quite a bit in an urban area in Dayton, Ohio, which is where I'm from, and uh, never didn't complete college, um, was in the Army, and then really was probably about 30 years old before he really found out what he could do well. And then he was quite an innovator. So a lot of those values, a lot of that attitude is reflected in how I approach everything I do. And then it took a very circuitous journey um, from college uh, to... Were, were you at Ohio State, is that right? No, actually, or? my undergraduate is from Colby College, which Colby. is in Maine. So Colby I grew College. up in Ohio. Okay. I wanted a liberal arts education. My parents also thought that was a good fit. It actually was a great fit, so I went to Maine to Colby College. Great experience, mm -hmm. an amazing school. And still in touch with some of the faculty that I, uh, I studied under and interacted with, as well as uh, many of my classmates as well. So great experience. Started then my first job, uh, professional job, was working for the Cato Institute. They had just moved two years earlier to Washington D.C. to think tank, and uh, a lot of that I, I was in public affairs and really realized I didn't want to be in public affairs. But again, that's experience, which has been incredibly important for me even now. Now that I'm running a center, even more so. Uh, but then went back and worked for my father for a couple of years to sort of figure out what I wanted to do. Started graduate school, got a master's in economics at the local community college, not community college, but a local four-year institution. But it was really an urban university. 
then went to George Mason University to study economics, but finished up at Ohio State. So in a degree in public administration. And that's your PhD? It's my PhD in public administration, but I've got a, uh, really essentially a PhD in economics, in public finance, in public sector economics, really identified as a researcher. Started my first think tank in 1989, um, which is now the Buckeye Institute in Ohio, but also worked for the Reason Foundation, but really progressively moved into more management in leadership positions. And that's really where I think I found my calling, certainly in this um, latter stage of my career. So less interested in research, more interested in enabling other people to do the research. But I'm interested in entrepreneurship and innovation and unleashing the talent of uh, this generation, which is millennials and Gen Z. Yeah, and now we're getting to uh, what do they call them? The, the Zoomers, right? Zoomers, the Zoomers yeah. are next; they're on the horizon. Yeah, okay. Uh, so, so Sam, um, you, in addition to the teaching that you do, you're a prolific writer. You have a website, SamuelRStaley.com, where you do many book and movie reviews and post some other musings. You also have. Uh, written some novels. Yep. And I actually read one of your novels a few years back called Saint Nick Inc. Uh, and it's all about this uh, creative story uh, explore. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yeah. it before I. Uh, it's yeah. a it's a novel, but I but there's also some underlying things and lessons yeah. for it. I think uh, you know it, it, it's a it was a it was a manuscript that I had in my back pocket for 20 years until I found the right publisher. And so it's St. Nick Inc., as you mentioned, that's the title. And it's really a a reimagination of the Santa Claus myth, starting from the premise, what if it actually existed? How would it actually operate? And um, and Santa does exist, Sam. I I, I hope you believe. If you read my novel, you'll know Santa exists. Yes, yes. Yes, that's it. But it was uh, prompted by, you know, I'm a parent, got two kids, both of them are out um, of college and doing quite well professionally, which is great. Um, Self-sufficient, that's important. Um, But it really started out when my kids were younger and they asked every parent, you know, does Santa Claus really exist? And I honestly fumbled the answer because I wanted to say yes, but, you know, do I believe in flying reindeer and that type of thing? No. And of course, and unfortunately, my son, who was a little bit younger, uh, was listening to us. I was talking to my older daughter about this because she's the one that asked the question. And, but that got me, and it, he still says, tells me he's been traumatized by that entire <laughs> conversation. But anyway, he's a creative, so um, um, hopefully he'll channel that trauma into, uh, into something really interesting. But anyway, uh, so, but the idea was, okay, this is interesting because we know that um, goodness is important. Um, we do know that the, the basic ideas that drives Santa Claus, and it's, um, there is a legend. Um, we've kind of made it into a myth. But there really was a Nicholas at some point, and that person did great work, and we did call him Saint Nicholas because of, of how he was trying to make the world a better place. But then I'm, you know, I'm an, uh, a researcher, I'm an economist, um, study entrepreneurship and innovation. I'm thinking, I wonder if this could really exist. And so I started, took each of the myths uh, that's part of the, at least the American or the North American myth, you know, Santa Claus with his factory up in the North Pole, and then elves and then flying reindeer and then I created a real world analog to each one of those and Mm. built that as the foundation of the story and I actually have it in the North Pole I mean you have to read it but actually um, 
the initial editor for the publisher had a little bubble at the end, at an editorial bubble at the end of the manuscript when she went through the first content edit. She said, I think I really believe in Santa Claus now. And uh, that's really what I'm trying to do. But there's some really interesting other ideas that I use to explore it. So it's, um, most of it, I would say 90% of it is intentional, but some readers have given me, have commented on it and they've found that there are things in there that I didn't even realize were in there, which is sort of interesting. But so if you, let's just, but if you have something in the North Pole, actually that's not a country. It's not a nation. So this is kind of a rogue enterprise and it's global in nature. So in order for it to work, and I do create a framework for it to work, it, it actually is something that is plausible, sort of a near science, fi uh, science fiction thing, not something like going out into other planets. It, um, but it, it, it really is sort of interesting I think it was interesting for me to play with. And then the real tension is built around the fact that no one can really believe that Santa Claus really exists. And so the DEA begins tracking its transactions and they begin, uh, and they think it's something that it's not. And right. so ultimately like drug cartels, trafficking money and yeah. all sorts of things. So if you think about it, um, in order for part of this, in order for this whole thing to work, I mean, nobody knows who Santa Claus is. All we know is these presents sort of show up and are, you know, under a tree if you're a Christian or wherever it might be. Or if you're, you know, I kind of look at it as also like we have the Marines, um, you know, Toys for Tots thing. You know, the kids don't know where the money, where it comes from. But in my church also is active in this. And the idea is that there's a humility that goes with it, this whole idea where you're just doing it for the goodness of the effort. You're not looking for credit. Right. Well, if you're a DEA agent, trying to look for, and you're assuming there's nefarious activity out there, you know, why would someone try to be hiding this? And right. you know, if this is a cash enterprise, you know, how are we doing this? How are these people just sort of popping up out of nowhere? Who's on, whose radar are they on? It actually, uh, so some of the, the thought process that's used uh, on, on currently in the way we track people we think are um, drug dealers or drug, and actually I have a book on the drug trade that was way out earlier, so I understand how the... Like how a nonfiction book? A nonfiction yeah. book. It was one of my first uh, research books. Well, so I was going to mention, you know, it, se it seems like, you know, when, it, when, I, uh, when you read, you know, the fact that you've, you've written some of these novels, it's just not something sort of uh, you would expect from an economics professor necessarily. And, and maybe, and you know, you are a lot broader than that title, I should say, but, um, you know, you also have a new book, though, coming out that is not a fiction book, it's a nonfiction book, and it's called The Beatles and Economics, yeah. Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and the Making of Cultural Revolution. And this is uh, particularly exciting um, to hear about on this podcast because you've got some words in the title right there, innovation and entrepreneurship. Uh, and also, this is a book on uh, one of the greatest uh, bands and, and uh, most, at least you can say the most iconic bands of all time. And we interview entrepreneurs and artists on this podcast. And so uh, tell us a little bit more about what this book's about and why yeah. you wrote it. Uh, it's, it's actually interesting. If you'd asked me five years ago if I'd write a book on the Beatles, I would have said, ah, you're crazy. I mean, I've got a book on, on film and economics because I watch a lot of film. As you mentioned, I do a lot of film reviews. Um, and published them on a variety of platforms, and so I incorporated that into a book. But uh, the Beatles and economics was something very different, and uh, it sort of started. In it, I, 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 
I'm not really a fan of the Beatles in the sense I don't live to find out, and I don't, I don't uh, what the next ne- next thing Paul McCartney's doing, and I appreciated the music, but I was too young to experience them contemporaneously, and I certainly listened to them, but I was much more sort of a, a the, the bands of the '70s, Boston. I mean, heavy metal. Well, mm-hmm. now heavy metal, classic rock, um, Cream. Yeah. But all bands mm-hmm. that sort of uh, followed the Beatles. Yeah. And and you know, some people might say some of the music wouldn't exist without the Beatles, or at least the popularity. Right. And so when I started this endeavor, I really was taking that world that I knew that was post Beatles, but I was trying to understand the Beatles because I could appreciate their impact. And I remember I was driving up to Nashville at the time. My brother was living up there, and he's in the business and managing um, is managing bands for um, a company out of Nashville. And uh, this was the fiftieth anniversary, or yeah, the fiftieth anniversary of the Sgt. Pepper album and the Beatles Channel. I have to give props to SiriusXM <laughs> because this book would not exist without them having started the Beatles Channel. Me stumbling across it on my way to Nashville. And they're talking, they're doing all these tributes to the to Sgt. Pepper. And I'm thinking, now my economist brain begins to kick to kick, kick in and saying, well, this is a major disruption of everything in pop music in the 60s. The, there's something more going on here. And I don't think people have really I've really figured it out. Because they're talking about the artistry. And they say, of course, this is brilliant. Well, if you're going into the studio in 1966 and 1967 there was no indication that this was going to be a commercial success. Hmm. Um, this was so far off the charts, no one could predict what its outcome would be. So I began thinking about it. What is it? I mean, uh, the, the um, record company, EMI, basically gave them a blank check to go and use very expensive studio time, using the best musicians available, studio musicians and others. And how did that come about? Right. Because you're just not going to get that to happen. And so... I bet that, a lot of the artists we've had on this podcast would love love that to yeah. happen for them, right? Right, absolutely. <laughs> so I, the, so the book is really about the investigation of that. And then having this continuing innovation. So there are two things that sort of... Uh, some stuff I kind of knew I'd figure out by the, with the research. One of those is that um, entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial capitalism was really important. There is no way that a band consisting of four Liverpudlians would have been able to be successful without entrepreneurial capitalism Mm because they were so far outside the mainstream. And it took a particular producer at the lowest rung of the recording industry in London to see the potential. Not even, it wasn't even realized, it was just untapped potential. But the other part of it, which I think is really underappreciated is the innovation process that the Beatles had created over the previous five years of playing and how they were able to ratchet up the quality in a way that just created the sustained innovation. And it was the band. It was all four Beatles. It could not have happened if you didn't have Ringo Starr. It could not have happened if you didn't have George Harrison. And most people know it would not have happened without Paul McCartney or John Lennon. But part of what I try to do is also, and this came through my research, is really try to communicate a better appreciation for George Harrison and Ringo Starr 
as mm. part of the band from the from that beginning when they formed as the Beatles. So that to me was really I found I was writing a book that was just going to hopefully introduce people to economics in a fun way. Yeah. What I found is that we uncovered a nugget that I think has been underappreciated because an economist hadn't really looked at the Beatles as an entity, as sort of an innovation, um, as a, as an as just this continuous innovation hub and how they sustain it. And so I also have a chapter on why they broke up, completely understandable. Also, why it's good for pop music they both broke up and why it's good for the Beatles that they broke up. Hmm. And then uh, also, and I have a short chapter that sort of says, uh, that looks at the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones because they were the, they were the biggest competitors at the time, if you want to call it comp competition, yeah. but they really weren't competitors. Um, this was a very collaborative environment for creatives and I'll, people underestimate that. And actually the framework that I create through the analysis of the innovation process in the Beatles helps us explain why the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones didn't achieve the same level of influence. Could you speak briefly to uh, what you're referring to as the innovation process? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so the innovation process. So what we're talking about, so we can talk about innovations, which are particular things that we do that change things. And mm -hmm. you'll see lots of innovations in the Beatles music. Everything from, and this is one of the fascinating things, you'll find that are in some songs, I want to say, I think it's, uh, um, oh gosh, I'm sort of blanking on the individual um, uh, songs at, at this point, but I think I feel fine. There is this feedback that is used at the very beginning. Oh, actually, and there's also, um, yeah, feedback. And that that sets a whole different tone for the song. Mm -hmm. And it fundamentally changes. If you take that out, the song is not the same. It doesn't have the freshness that comes with it. Same thing's true with Help, which they, it was originally Help was just a song, it was sort of a normal uh, yeah, McCartney Lennon sort of finishing song, but they needed something to really have it stand out because it was opening for their movie. And uh. it changes the song. And you'll find they were very, very aggressive in using the best studio musicians they could find. Um, the piccolo trumpet is uh, is one of the examples uh, it, that was they were used in um, to just change the way it happened. So these are these are innovations, and also broke the use of orchestral arrangements, which George Martin, the producer, had a lot to do with. But the Beatles were open to it. That's the thing. I was going to ask you, because was this the Beatles themselves, the four guys you mentioned that we all know, yeah. or was it the studio musicians? Was it the producers? It was yeah. some kind of combination of being open to it. Yeah, and so this is where we get to the innovation process. Right. And what was so different about the Beatles. Um, a lot of people sort of think of uh, it's sort of a John Lennon and Paul McCartney were clearly standout songwriters early. But if we look at Abbey Road afterwards, George Harrison makes major contributions that are still some of the most important Beatles contributions to music in history. Mm -hmm. That includes something uh, here comes, I mean, but also not just that album, but Here Comes the Sun, While My, Bicard, my, my Guitar Gently Weeps. But so what, what happened was, um, and originally this was John Lennon's band. It was not Paul McCartney's band. And if you look at when they formed as uh, the Quarrymen, which was the precursor of the Beatles in Liverpool, um, Paul McCartney was invited in by John Lennon. Everyone deferred to John Lennon. So, But what happened is that John Lennon recognized Paul McCartney's abilities. Both, he was a better guitarist, 
but also they had song, they had songwriting sensibilities, and they were different, but they could complement. Mm -hmm. And they had they shared a couple of personal things that were important. They both lost their mothers at, um, in, in their teen years, and so they bonded over some of that as well. But George Harrison, it took Paul McCartney over a year to get George Harrison into the band because John Lennon didn't want him in the band. He thought he was too young. Hmm. So everyone deferred to John, to John Lennon because it was John Lennon's band. Well, then what happened as Paul McCartney and John Lennon began to work more and collaborate more, they, uh, the, sort of the power, if you will, sort of equalized a little bit. Right. But what they did, a lot of people think that they were gatekeepers of other, they were sort of hoarding their own work. But that wasn't what was going on. What they were saying, because John Lennon and even Ringo, I mean, uh, George Harrison and even Ringo Starr would bring songs in and say, you know, what about this? And when they were rejected, the song, they were rejected really over um, two criteria. Did anybody else do it before? And did we do it before? If the answer was yes to those, it didn't go on. And they didn't work on it. So, and that was true for John Lennon's songs as well as Paul McCartney's songs. So John Lennon and Paul McCartney were really not collaborators in the sense that, say, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger are in the Rolling Stones. They don't actually get together and sort of write these songs. The songs themselves, the vast majority of them, are a Paul McCartney song or a Lennon song, but the collaborative creative process is what finishes it and makes it a great song. And so that is the innovation process. They embedded it in the culture of the organization. And so lots of John Lennon songs were, were rejected. Lots of Paul, Lennon, uh, Paul McCartney songs were rejected. And then as George Harrison's work got better and better and better, it rose to the level where they could do something with it as a band to finish it, and it would be new and different. So most people in the 60s, they never knew what was going to be on the next Beatles album. Wow. So th these guys were really, truly entrepreneurs. And when you think about what is an entrepreneur, ask themselves about what they have unique to offer to the market. Right. Right. And yeah. what you're saying, you know, like, you, you have to have a, something that's, you know, what they say also a unique selling proposition in right. a sense, right? And so right. they're asking themselves, well, has somebody done this before? Uh, if so, we're, we're doing something different. Right. You know, what, we want to be doing something different. And yeah. so, and that's, maybe it's both from a artistic point of view, they want to be totally creative, but maybe it's also from, a, you know, looking at the market or maybe maybe it's some yeah. something that's just uh, hospitable to the market. I think what I, in the book we find, it, so now here's where you have to sort of understand a little bit more of the personalities of John Lennon, of all the people in the, uh, all four. And you find that they are driven primarily by artistic mm -hmm. values. And they wanted to be rich. And by the way, that's important because they looked at the market as a way of validating their art. Right. And so, and pop music at the time was not funded publicly. And I'm not saying that it really is a criticism of politics. It's just that the source of the funds had to come from the customers. And if the customers were not seeing value in what they're producing and willing to monetize it in that way, they were not going to be successful. And that's the way rock and roll was. That's the way American folk music in the United States, we had lots of other complicating issues with race and that type of thing and various forms of prejudice and culture, but they recognized intuitively as well as later explicitly that it's that market validation which gives them the power to innovate. Yeah. And then they became very wealthy as a performance band, by the way, we forget that, that they were doing these tours, um, highest grossing pop music acts in the world by the time they came to the United States, 
they then used that wealth to invest in their art, which is where Sgt. Pepper comes from. Wow. And so without their personal wealth, without EMI's trust that had been built up over their success in innovating through the previous albums, Rubber Soul um, being one of the more important, Revolver probably being the most important in terms of innovation, um, Sgt. Pepper wouldn't happen. And we kind of see that with the Beach Boys and Pet Sounds, what happened there and the, the innovation process broke down within the band itself. Uh, in my view, because a lot of it was about Brian Wilson, who's tremendous a talent, incredibly innovative. Mm -hmm. um, but the Beatles had four innovators and four people that were committed to their art. And in my classes on social entrepreneurship, we read um, some work by Israel Kersner, who's very, he writes in a very classic style, which is hard for a lot of the current generation. But a lot of his ideas, as well as those by uh, Friedrich Hayek and Ludwig von Mises, have made it into mainstream entrepreneurship literature, where we talk about what the entrepreneur do, does is try to figure out or identify those opportunities that have not been exploited in the market before, and then how to monetize that, how to, how to find that value on the margin. And, the, and you find in the Beatles, they were doing that every day. Their entire makeup as individuals and as a band, which institutionalized it, yeah. made that happen. Well, uh, Sam, we're going to look forward to this book, The Beatles and Economics, Entrepreneurship, Innovation, and the Making of a Cultural Revolution. When is it available? It's available in April, the uh, 50th anniversary of the breakup of the Beatles, and it's being published by Rutledge out of London. Okay, well, yeah. we're, we're, uh, we're recording this at the early March here, and, but... Uh, you know, probably a lot of people will listen to this before April, but of course these podcasts are evergreen and they last yeah. uh, they last years into the future. So April 2020, this book is available. You can check it out, find it online, and uh, and, and let's transition a little bit now because you just you, you just mentioned something there a little bit about your teaching, but you you also lead the Devoe Moore Center at FSU, um, which uh, tell us a little bit about what this is and uh, the history of it and. And you're, and again, what you're doing yeah. with it. Yeah, the Devote Moore Center is a unique entity. Um, we're an endowed center, endowed by Devote Moore, who is a local uh, developer and is a huge supporter of Florida State University. He doesn't just give to the Devote Moore Center. He's, most of his money, in fact, has gone into supporting FSU yeah. generally. So incredibly big heart, very committed to FSU, but he endowed the center in 1998 to really look at market-oriented solutions to, uh, to public policy on the state and local level. So our focus is entrepreneurship, regulation. Uh, we look a lot about, at government transparency and accountability as well as part of that. And a lot of it is, is geared toward freeing up uh, ways that we can responsibly free up the market to meet needs. And we're a lot in housing. Regulation is a big part of housing, uh, but not, not just Florida, but elsewhere. So. When I came to Florida State in 2011, uh, this the center was very active, did some great academic research, but I was brought on board to really give it more of policy relevance and bring it into the contemporary discussion and debate. And since then, we've built it, we now have 30 um, full-time and part-time staff and students and faculty working with us. Most of them are students. So we have a business, we've sort of leveraged our endowment use our business model to really give opportunities for students to learn how to do research in a professional environment, understand how to engage with the public and work across disciplines and with people with a variety of different backgrounds and experiences. So we have partnerships with the 
Department of Scientific Computing, partnerships with the Department of English, partnerships with the ASCII School of Public Policy and Administration at, at FSU, uh, active partnerships, and these are all active partnerships, urban planning, and of course, economics. So we, uh, we have a fully, uh, we have a complete editorial department um, where we're bringing people in to work on all sorts of writing from policy studies to blog posts to commentary. And it's really exciting. Actually. Yeah. It's like, it's fun. No, well, I've, I've noticed you've been there uh, a little while. How long has it been? Nine now? years. Nine years. Yeah. Wow, time flies. I remember yeah. when you first got there, and as you mentioned, the DeVoe Moore Center had been around since the late 90s. Yeah. But really, I think when you got there, it was like, maybe it was you putting the life into it. Maybe it was some combination. They wanted to uh, have somebody like you put some life into it. And uh, it seemed like it really did. And then, you, like you said, I mean, you guys produce a lot of uh, uh, sort of research papers, but things that are more relevant uh, that legislators might yep. take a look at, you know, government officials might take a look at, and all those uh, partnership groups that you mentioned are looking at it. It's influencing them. So it's in influencing the public conversation right. about uh, what's going on. And it's really great that you have a, a private philanthropist like DeVoe Moore who has endowed the center at a public university. Right. Such a unique combination. It is very unique. And a matter of fact, I don't really, I can't think of offhand, well, especially a university like Florida State. Um, which is now of course, a top 20 public university. It, it's, um, you might find some of these endowments in smaller colleges and smaller universities, but something of, at, of this stature and size, because we have 32,000 undergraduates yeah. and 8,000 graduate students, it's pretty unique. And um, also, but the university has given me the freedom to work with it. And the, the center was doing very, very good academic work before. It's just because academic work tends to be siloed. It tends to be focused more on other scholars. We didn't see a lot of it. So part of it was me bringing it, well, I mean, brought two things, well, a couple things. One is my experience in think tanks. Right. I knew how to engage the work and sort of take that work and make it relevant, but also to generate new work that could be policy relevant, but also in think tanks, uh, and, or most nonprofit organizations, you're dealing a lot, you're also working a lot with partnerships. Mm -hmm. It's never a solo endeavor. endeavor. Right. Well, it's interesting to me because when you look at, you know, a lot of people today, especially, you know, we have this idea that you go to college, you major in something, you have a career in something, and it's very, like, specific. You know, it's yeah. like this this timeline, and that's, like, not true. <laughs> like, yeah. It doesn't seem with anything, <laughs> right. including, like, somebody who kind of went into an academic discipline, yeah. and but you've had this, like you said, this circuitous route, uh, working for some different think tanks, uh, doing some, some writing, uh, going into teaching, and then and then now running running a center at a, a public university. So yeah. uh, pretty pretty interesting. It's not like somebody has like could prepare your career path yeah. for that. But you've brought all these unique skills that you know the Devoe Moore Center and FSU a is benefiting from, and the public, the Florida public, is benefiting from. Yeah. Uh, so it's really great. So speaking of that, uh, you also teach some classes on social entrepreneurship. I should uh, let you know that I've had some interns over the years that were FSU students that took your classes. Oh, really? And one of them uh, was Carter Fowler. Oh, yeah. And Carter yeah. actually, uh, a couple years ago, started actually helping me um, with some of the social media for this podcast. Oh, awesome. And also built the website, agentsofinnovation.org for me. Great. So it kind of comes full circle here. But uh, he would, oh, he would, I remember him just coming into work 
and he was a, he was actually both an intern and also we hired him uh, later as well uh, as a paid staffer. But um, he would come into work just really excited, c- coming from some of your classes, and you know he and and I, it's kind of cool that when we were when I was starting this podcast, and he started listening to it and some, giving me some feedback. Uh, because this podcast has to do, we interview a lot, to, a lot of entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. I mentioned artists as well, but also philanthropists. And you know, now there's this idea of social entrepreneurship that, in addition to profit, uh, and some people might argue, uh, like I think it was Steve Jobs. Mm-hmm. So, so let's just back this up before. Right. Let me. Okay. So, social entrepreneurship is a little bit, you know, in addition to the profits, the actual companies uh, is is doing something uh, for the. Better social well-being is that how you would describe it? Well, it's yes, in a, in a very general sense. In other words, but let me back up a little bit on this. Okay. Um, part of my re- so, I don't think any entrepreneur. Well, there, no, I can't say that. It's too general. There are very few entrepreneurs that start their business for the pure purpose of making money. Right. Almost all of them are trying to do something that serves a larger purpose. Um, certainly, I can even use my father mm-hmm. as an example. Um, definitely, we had, uh, it was a seasonal business. It was actually in the ski industry in Ohio. So we had a ski area, a backyard ski area. I, I didn't know there was a ski industry in Ohio. Yeah, yeah, there is actually. Okay, so this yeah. makes sense, because I was yeah. reading, I, I didn't know about you that you were a big alpine skier. Yeah. And I was thinking, how does that work in Tallahassee? You must, you must have to travel north a lot. Yeah. But Ohio has that yeah. skiing. So anyway, no, go yeah. Ahead. So um, at one point, we had seven ski areas in Ohio, and uh, my father was an innovator in that in that part of it. But um, yeah, at the end of the day, what what motivated him was it to make money. Well, actually, anybody who sort of looked at the the balance sheet, you know, of those, it was a it was a pretty risky endeavor. But he was successful for quite a while. But he had found that there is a passion that came from alpine skiing that really was very freeing and allowed a just thought it was a it was something that if people experienced that they would become better mm-hmm. and so part of his mission was to make this help the ski area serve as many people as possible but it wasn't really primarily motivated by profit and then in graduate school, I was doing research on enterprise zones, and I was interviewing a lot of CEOs of businesses that were trying to figure out do tax incentives make a difference. And what I found in these interviews, and these were all what we now call structured interviews, qualitative research, but enough of them to become quantitative and presented the results at a few conferences. But um, what I found is that very few of these CEOs and presidents really motivated primarily by money. Mm-hmm. They had seen an opportunity that had been unrealized. And they thought, oh, I could actually make this industry better. I could do something really cool for my employees if we're successful. So I've always felt as a someone who's been involved in the practical part of business and looking at entrepreneurs and what really motivates them, that the money itself is not a primary motivation. Same thing's true for the Beatles, by the way. Mm-hmm. They wanted it, but it was not primary. Um, they uh, so they enjoyed being wealthy, and they certainly used that wealth in excess on personal levels. <laughs> but at the same time, if they were just paying the bills, they would have been happy to write songs and continue to play. So part of so going back to Steve Jobs, and I use Steve Jobs a lot as an example because one, most of my students have an iPhone or they've seen one, they understand mm-hmm. the smartphones. Steve Jobs, what always struck me about is that he was interested in creating something new that was changed the way we interacted. 
And I think that was true for computers when he started Apple Computer, as well as when we're talking about iPods and then the smartphone. And so this idea that we are, as entrepreneurs, creating something of value, of social value, is embedded, I think, in the entrepreneurial culture. So social, what's social entrepreneurship then? Well, some people, it's, I don't think it's quite just entrepreneurship as traditionally defined. Although I will say that if we go back to the way entrepreneurship was, dis- how it was discussed in the 50s and 60s and earlier, there's not that much of a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, so and this is why I use Israel Kirzner and Mises and others. So social entrepreneurship is a business that has been designed to address a social issue, however that might be defined. So there is that. That's what we call a minimum of a double bottom line. In other words, yes, you have to make money. Because as I tell my students, the more money you make, the more social change you can Right. You, can, you can finance or you can create. Um, but the second bottom line is social impact. In other words, you actually have to show you're having a meaningful effect on that social issue or that social problem. For me, a fully integrated social enterprise is one that does not operate as a philanthropy. It actually changes the structure of production to address, have that social issue addressed. Let's take um, recidivism and uh, the reentry of of ex-offenders into the mainstream labor force. The idea is not that you create a lot of money to then finance a philanthropy. What you want a fully integrated enterprise be one who actually brings that offender into the production, into the business itself, assists with the retraining. And if you can, if you're successful enough, provide those wraparound services that are necessary to facilitate that. And then they won't necessarily stay in that business. What you're doing is giving them a transition point, allowing them to to really readjust to the world outside, develop new skills, develop the kinds of habits that will allow them to be successful. And then you let them move on, like everybody. Like I've moved on lots of times and other people have as well. And so that to me is what we try to aspire in my classes, the way I teach it. So now there are some social issues that won't be easily addressed through that particular model. But we use that, that's where I want people to aspire. And then as the course goes on, we begin to adjust it, um, depending. So like if you're working in schools, um, you it's very difficult to work as a for-profit. And so we'll say, okay, you probably need to incorporate as a nonprofit because right. otherwise you can't even get, you can't even get in the schools, let alone figure out a way to monetize those contracts or those funds or those programs. Yeah. Well, so uh, it's, it's interesting. I was just uh, thinking back to uh, episode 31 of this podcast a couple years ago. I was in Nashville, Tennessee, and interviewed an entrepreneur there, Mark Cleveland, who launched a company called Hitch. And it's basically an app. It's H-Y-T-C-H. It's an app. And it was it was just getting it off the ground at that time. So we'll have to revisit uh, if it's working. But uh, it's I would say it fits in the social entrepreneurship because what he was doing was Basically, if you use a, a carpool or a rideshare service, you log it on the app, and there's mm-hmm. ways they can track if you're doing this, and you get points, and those points eventually turn into cash. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that Hitch and their investors wanted to, this was their way to cut down on pollution and yeah. you know all sorts of things and, and, and get people to share rides and all these things, take traffic off the road to all these things, right? So basically tapping into sort of the success of what's going on in Uber and Lyft and everything, but incentivizing people to do that rather than just be single riders when they can. And so using this sort of economic incentive for a social goal of, you know, 
better environment. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's that's the type of thing we're trying to encourage. And with um, and students uh, like eighteen to twenty year olds, twenty two year olds, which is really where my wheelhouse is right now. Actually, my classes are upper division, so juniors and seniors, but they are so primed to do this. They just love it. Um, we what I find is that it is well also the pedagogy we use, which is really based on validating human dignity and trying to empower people. That's sort of a central theme means that we can have incredibly diverse students. Um, we're not just talking about race and ethnicity, but yeah, I, I will typically have wild-eyed environmental vegans who then <laughs> are suddenly talking and having great conversations with you know, the bros from the, frat, you know, the fraternity who are all about starting a business and trying to finance, you know, they become the next hedge fund manager. But when we bring it into this class, it, um, everybody is sort of equalized in the sense that everyone's idea has merit. What we're doing with the business is figuring out, using the business as an instrument for achieving that goal. And it is interesting how students just instinctively, and I think this is a very human thing, we instinctively are want to bond with other, other humans. Mm-hmm. And when we equalize those power relationships and we can do that through entrepreneurship, uh, you begin to see the value that others bring into your idea as, and we have a very discussion-based system or approach that's a key to our pedagogy, that it, um, which are teaching practices. Um, you find that there's just a tremendous amount of creativity that comes out of that and unfortunately, I only have them for a semester, but we have more yeah. and more resources at FSU that people can take it to the next step. We can so do you find that. like a lot of, I feel like a lot of younger people, maybe let's just, we, we always use this millennial term, right? Yeah. <laughs> they are, they seem to be really tapped into sort of doing good, right? Mm-hmm. Like whether it's volunteering, uh, being involved in charitable causes, it seems like, you know, all these sorts of things, but also they had this idea of wanting to do good in the marketplace as well and has is is teaching something like social entrepreneurship also a way to uh, teach entrepreneurship and uh, sort of tap into the the sort of social goals that they might have but teach them how to how to how to basically achieve it through entrepreneurship. Yeah, very very much so. And a lot of the, certainly what I bring into the classroom is my experience as a founder of nonprofit organizations and manager of nonprofit organizations. I've served on boards or in leadership positions and nonprofits from everything from, well, right now, I'm chair of the board of a small nonprofit that has a very focused um, program for putting uh, getting homeless people into how sustainable housing. It's a very small nonprofit, can't afford a full-time staff, but we're very effective. We have an 85% success rate in getting homeless into sustainable housing. That's great. And uh, But then I've also been on the boards and, uh, of organizations of $6 million a year operating budgets and schools. So a lot of this, uh, a lot of this practical work of trying to sustain our organizations comes into the way I teach entrepreneurship as well as the struggles of trying to found it, figure out, do you want to be non-profit, for-profit, limited partnership, corp- sub-corporation, whatever it might be. But here's what I think has been missing, um, and I think I've seen this very directly, and I reflect a lot on my early years. Young people are very creative, and they're, all, they're almost always socially oriented. It's a question of how you channel it. And I think the social entrepreneurship 
approach as a way of channeling that passion for trying to be good or create value, create that identity around that, which I think is natural in being uh, sort of growing up, if you will, right. um, into a practical, sustainable mechanism for achieving that. So uh, millennials today, most millennials are entitled, and, but they're entitled from the wealth of their parents. Right. So most of them are coming from a middle class or higher background. That has given them more freedom than, say, my father, who was really focused on, I need to make sure I can pay rent. Right. I, you know, it's a, a hierarchy of needs thing. So a lot of our students come in, um, we have, I think, just as being youthful, you are naturally idealistic and you want to try and change the world for the better. We channel that into trying doing better for other people, for the most, most of us. Now, we have certainly a cohort of narcissists, um, so mm -hmm. I'm not ignoring that component of it at all. But then what they want, though, is they want to see their life's work have lasting impact. And if you can create a sustainable enterprise that is a market-driven revenue base, you are doing that. And it's scalable. So we focus a lot on, is this something that can scale? That's great. So if people are interested in that, um, you know, you can, they can go to samuelrstaley.com and find all your resources there, but also they can check out everything you're doing at Florida State University. Absolutely. Um, is, yeah. that, is that taught through the DeVoe Moore Center? The social um, no, so it's an interesting arrangement. So I have faculty in the DeVoe Moore Center, but we're not really a department. Okay. So what we do is we go, at, we teach in other departments. Gotcha. And which is actually a great model. It allows us, gives us a lot of flexibility, allows us to scale. I can add sections because we kind of offer these services to the other departments. Do the departments, uh, say like the Department of Economics or as an example or something, do they treat you as a faculty teaching courses in their department as almost like they teach an adjunct? Like, are you, well, or, do you, or do they treat you more like a full professor? <laughs> oh, yeah. We are, not taught, we are not treated like a full professor, and that's good. Okay. Um, because that means they don't have committee assignments and they yeah. don't have all sorts of other stuff. Um, I look at it as a way for us to not only serve our mission as the center, but also to provide service to the college and to the university. Yeah. Um, so, and I think they look at it that way. So we're not an adjunct, um, but because we are full-time faculty. So we have two full-time faculty now and two other part-time affiliated faculty that do work for us. But our full-time faculty, we are completely integrated in terms of the substance and the teaching but we don't have the administrative responsibilities and we can't vote on promotion and tenure and that type of stuff. So the department of, so our faculty lines are actually in the, the DeVoe Moore Center. That gives us a tremendous amount of flexibility to uh, sort of impact the, um, the college in ways that departments can't. We can be interdisciplinary. Yeah. And it's very hard for other departments to be interdisciplinary, but we, that's just part of our DNA. That's great. Well, Sam, shifting a little focus here to, to kind of come on in for a landing a little bit yeah. on this interview. I just want to have a couple last questions. One is, um, I, I, and, and I don't know if these are related, but I've noticed in um, as a writer, uh, you've participated, you, you mentioned uh, you've been a part of some uh, some writers groups with, with other writers. So I want to know a little bit about that. And also uh, tell us a little bit more about some of the workshops you're involved with, such as film, storytelling, and character development, and how these sort of, uh, I don't know, extracurricular activities, in a sense, uh, yeah. with these civic association type groups and other things you're doing, uh, how they're formative to your own work, and maybe how you're able to pass on some of that knowledge that you've experienced to others. 
Wow, that's uh, we're, and this is what we're using to bring in for a landing, huh? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, my fiction writing is something I've really enjoyed, and uh, I like interacting with people, and I also knowing with my, I mean, now several decades of experience working in with media, working with trying to have our ideas uh, be taken seriously in important venues, but also promoting them. I kind of bring all that in. And what I, so I'm active in the Tallahassee Writers Association. Also, there's the Florida Authors and Publishers Association, which I served on the board of. As I also TWA Tallahassee Group. And I've also been active, I'm active in the Florida Writers Association. And um, one, these are just great people, and I just love interacting with them. And it's just, it's different. They're not the traditional economists and political science folks. And we can just talk about characters and creating good stories and what makes it and what makes it work and what doesn't make it work. And as someone who's been working in this, I, I, I we are, I think people in the policy world are finally beginning to recognize the importance of stories. Mm -hmm. um, as a teacher, I see the importance of stories. Every time I come up with an anecdote about or a metaphor, that's based on my real-world experience, my students liven up. But they're also important for conveying important principles and concepts and ideas. And uh, uh, movie makers have really figured this out, visual storytelling. Yeah. And as I tell my students, are as human beings, I'm reading a lot of neuroscience and a lot of uh, human psychology and social psychology too, as human beings, our dominant sense is sight. And it's, uh, for, for bonding and intimacy, it's touch. But for the way we interpret our world, it's sight. We are visual animals. That's how we keep from being eaten by tigers and bears. It's not listening, it's not smell, it's not taste. Half the stuff we taste, we probably die, um, but it's visual. So the reason why movies are so effective is because they're visual. And they bring the other senses in. So a good story is gonna figure out a way to bring all the other senses in because that's what makes us human. But the visual component is really, is really essential. And so I think us, me struggling with that in the policy world in particular, but also in teaching, I've has given me a sense of how the stories become important to serving a bigger purpose. And so what I love about the writers is that they're doing the same thing. Yeah. And so I have to, I can't just tell people stuff, except they're in lecture, I have to show them. And that's the classic thing in, in writing is show, don't tell. And anybody who's starting a writing, that's a real struggle. You know? And that, certainly for me, description is the weakest part of my writing. Character development is one of the strongest. Plot is very strong. And uh, a dialogue I'm pretty good at too, but when it comes to the actual descriptive part, I've really had to work hard at that. And so my workshops, are really intended to help those people that are the beginning stages, you know, think about how we recast our stories, recast our characters in ways that allow us to tell these visually. In, and in and how, how do these workshops, are these things you do locally around the state of Florida? Yeah, so I've done several. I've been on the faculty of the Florida Writers Association mm -hmm. a couple of years, done the work with the Tallahassee Writers Association. Um, haven't uh, my activity with FAPA, the Florida Authors and Publishers Association, they also another venue. But really, anybody who's interested, if they think that it's they're interested in the, some of the stuff, I'm willing to talk to them. If I have to travel a lot, then we're talking about I need a little bit. Um, I, yeah. I, I can't pay for it out of my pocket necessarily. But yeah, so I local writers groups in Anna Maria Island. Um, I've uh, given some of the talks on filmmaking and visual storytelling in Wichita. 
Um, it's been one group, Kansas Policy Institute, brought me out. Oh, we'll talk a little bit about that. Been up to Georgia, Georgia Public Policy Foundation. Actually, no, I'm sorry. They didn't bring me in. It was another group that brought me in. The Georgia but, Center for Opportunity? No, it okay. was um, actually, I think it was a local group that okay. brought me in. Uh, so I, I'm just passionate about this, stuff, about this, and I think it's an important way of thinking about how we communicate with others. And I also think it's a way for us to communicate. I think one of the, the biggest challenges I see among young people is we're not teaching them good skills for how to have difficult conversations. Um, we have to get back to this place where we can agree to disagree and understand what that means and respect right. the person on the other, other side of that conversation. And I think storytelling is a way to do that. And the creative process is a way to do that if you're doing it outside of your own isolated world, but you actually have to connect and, and work with other people. So I think it's all wrapped up. Well, that's great that you're able to benefit from others and also pass on your knowledge and help others benefit from it too. Um, Sam, just the last question I want to ask you. I, I, you mentioned earlier your first uh, professional job, maybe you're out of college, was at the uh, Cato Institute, I think. Yeah. But I like to go back to what was your first, first job. And, and then uh, if whatever it was, is there anything you might have learned from it or yeah. things that you might keep with you today? Yeah, so um, my first job, I mean, if we're talking about the job that actually paid me money if I actually did it right, right, um, would have been uh, delivering newspapers. But I was terrible at it. I mean, my mom <laughs> would talk about how I'd go out making snow angels rather than delivering the papers, you know, that kind of stuff. But I think my first real job, I was 13. I was fortunate to be in a family business, which means we didn't have all the regulations that have to do with, that, you know, employing people under 16. So my, my dad employed me and this, at the ski area, Sugar Creek Ski Hills. And um, I was busting tables. And it, I learned a lot about how important a small job could be. So even though I was clearing you know, all sorts, you know, cups and, and, and plates and that type of thing, I found that the, the people that were at these tables really appreciated it. Mm -hmm. they, real, they sort of valued that because usually they were coming in and trying to warm up after being outside and skiing. And so they had all this stuff. And, and so I learned to work hard um, to begin to appreciate the value by what I was doing for other people. And then beginning to draw those connections. And then I think those principles have stayed with me and um, uh, since the beginning and appreciate every job that somebody does. And I think that's kind of definitely carries through in the social entrepreneurship part. Every job has value and every goal has value. And the question is how do we, um, how do we support that in a healthy, productive and constructive way? And I think that's what entrepreneurship does. Great. Well, that's a great way to uh, to bring the plane in for a landing here. And uh, th I just want to thank you so much for your time and for all you do uh, for, you know, the public and for your students and for writers and, and entrepreneurs. And, uh, and just thanks for, for being on the Agents of Innovation podcast. Oh, thank you for letting me be on the podcast. It's a great opportunity. I love the, the podcast and what you're doing. And can't wait to see where it goes from here, too, because your audience is growing, which is great. Yeah, thank you yeah. so much. Well, we got one right. member of the audience that's now a guest, so thanks right. so much, Sam. <laughs> Sam Staley, and we can find you at SamuelRStaley.com, right? Yep, SamuelRStaley.com, and you can also just search Sam Staley, and you'll probably find me at FSU, and I'd love for people to reach out to me by email or, or whatever, and um, yeah, SamuelRStaley.com, and go from there. Great, thanks so much. Come on, take me home.
Did their wrong the goodbye steps Looking for a dice to roll With the world strapped to his back Oh man, that's a heavy load A story that's worth talking about Ain't all bust and folds It's a dream he must decide To lock it up or let it go My heart 